Hi there. Good morning, church. It's very good to see all your faces. I am Julia Allen. I am um, one of the founding members here at Garden City, and I, I do also happen to be married to Pastor Dennis. And I have been here from the beginning, but you will usually find me back that way in the kids' space. So I may not have gotten to meet all of you yet, and I would love to correct that somewhere down the line here. I consider it an incredible privilege to get to spend time every week with some of the youngest members of our church. And if I'm honest, they have taught me just about as much as I have taught them. But today, I'm really excited and, and grateful to be in this space with you guys as I have been just reading and studying and praying and processing through the passage that we're going to talk about today. I feel like God just has a really good word for our church family. So. I'm excited to do that. So why don't we pray and we'll get into it. Father, we thank you so much for your presence here among us. We ask you, Lord, now that you would quiet us with your love, that you would rejoice over us with singing, that you would give us humble hearts and open eyes and open ears that we might hear and see and receive all that you have for us today. Father, use my words to communicate yours. We thank you and we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So, if you have been with us the last few months, you know that we have been learning through the book of Exodus, learning about the Israelite people from their time of oppression and enslavement in Egypt through their liberation, and as they have been on this journey with the Lord through the desert, on their way to this land that God promised them, this land that's described as flowing with milk and honey. God has led his people through the desert of Sinai to the base of the mountain where now they are camped. And God has descended onto the mountaintop in this cloud, and he called Moses up to the mountaintop to speak with him. He has been sharing with Moses the law and the commandments. He's invited the Israelite people into a covenant relationship with him, where he has promised to be their God, and they have promised to be his people. They've promised to obey him, and to worship him alone. God has given Moses instructions on how the people are to construct a tabernacle so that God's very presence can dwell in the midst of, their of his people as they continue on their journey. And through all of this, Moses has remained up on that mountain for 40 days, and the people have become nervous, anxious, and restless, and very insecure. And in their insecurity, born of lacking a deep relationship with God, they commit an awful sin. They turn their hearts, their devotion and trust and affection to something that is not God. They gather all their gold together and melt it down and shape it into a golden calf. And then they gather around this powerless object and worship it. God is righteously enraged by the Israelites' betrayal of their promise and in his anger, he distances himself from the people. And then Moses, after coming down to deal with the people, goes back up on the mountain to come and try to plead for their forgiveness. And this is where we come to our passage this week. 
I'm going to read two portions of Exodus 33 that will serve as our text for today. And you can read along on the screens or in your Bibles or smartphones or whatever you have. This is Exodus 33, 1 through 3 and 12 through 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me lead these people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. So, as this exchange between God and Moses opens, God is instructing Moses that the time has come for the Israelites to break their camp, gather their belongings, and continue on this journey that he has been leading them on toward the land that he promised their ancestors. God says he will once again send his angel out before the people to lead and prepare the way and to drive out any people they may encounter on their way. But this time, God says, he will not go with them because they are a stiff-necked people and in his anger he might destroy them. That word stiff-necked is an interesting word. It's a Hebrew word that means stubborn and obstinate and rebellious. But in a very literal sense, it evokes this image of a person just pridefully resistant to relaxing their shoulders softening, humbling themselves, and bowing before the Lord in worship. In that devastating statement, I will not go with you, it might seem a little confusing to us here because God has already promised to send his angel out before the people. There's a paradox here, a bit of a mystery about what the presence of the Lord actually means. The Hebrew words used here say, I will not go up in the midst of you. 
and we can better understand what God might be saying by considering his original plan before the Israelites interrupted it with their unfaithfulness. Remember, God had instructed his people to build this tabernacle, and the whole purpose of the tabernacle was so that God could live right in the middle of his people, in the heart of their community. So when God says, but I will not go with you, he's indicating that an angel at the front of the people would be there to represent God's presence. But there would no longer be a sacred space for that gracious, holy presence of Yahweh to be present in the midst of them. To Moses, all the land and inheritance in the world was nothing if they no longer have the presence of the Lord with them. And so he goes back to the Lord and pleads his case. And this is my paraphrase. God, remember when you called me to lead these people back at the burning bush. I was fearful and full of doubt, and you promised to go with me, to be with me. And you've told me that you know, that me, you know me intimately and you love me, and if that's true, stay with me. Let me know you. Teach me your ways so that I may continue to honor you. God listens to Moses, and he responds by saying, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And that might sound reassuring to us, but to Moses it's not enough, because the you in that phrase is singular and specific. What God is essentially saying is, okay, my presence I'll go in the same direction. I'll walk alongside these people. And I will give rest and peace of mind to you personally, Moses. But he says nothing at all else about the rest of the people. So Moses pleads further, and he is calling God's attention back to the foundations of his redemptive work and the very identity of the Israelite people. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people of the earth? Israel was meant to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, distinguished from all of the other peoples in the world by the presence of Yahweh in their midst. And it was by knowing, loving, and worshiping the God who dwells with them that the Israelites would show the rest of the world who God really is in all his goodness, liberation, justice, compassion, and mercy. This past week, I was back in kids' church where I usually am, teaching the preschoolers. And as I was teaching, I stopped and asked them this question. Why do you think God chose the Israelites to be his special people? Now, whenever you ask a question of that crew, you can always expect to get a very wide array of entertaining and interesting responses. And this was no exception. So a whole bunch of little hands popped up, and the first little guy I called on started to tell me how he was going to Florida soon, and that was really exciting because they have more sunshine there. And everybody thought that sounded great. 
And then one of my little buddies raised his hand and he gave us his faithful weekly reminder that we should all be kind to each other and that we should take good care of our space and the things that we have. But there is that one story in the Bible where Jesus got angry and he broke some tables. So obviously there's an exception to every rule. And then one of the kids, Valerius Harris, raised his hand and said, because they were his friends. His words really affected me. And I asked him to repeat his answer to make sure all the other kids heard, because it felt like a holy moment. I find that children often have this capacity to take complex things and express them in very simple and unassuming terms that still somehow manage to carry the full depth and weight of the truth. And this felt like one of those times to me because there are much more theologically complex ways to describe the relationship between God and the Israelites. But at its core, it was a relationship, not unlike a friendship. God wanted to know his people and be truly known by them. It was intended to be a relationship marked by intimacy, devotion, trust, and love. And it was out of that place of knowing God and being known loving God and being loved, living in the presence of Yahweh that the Israelites were meant to demonstrate to all the other people of the earth the goodness and glory of God. I think Valerius's answer expressed something of what Moses was trying to communicate to move the heart of God. And in Moses's case, it did. In verse 17, the Lord responds to Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. And just like that, God relents. He reaffirms to Moses that he will not withdraw his presence from his people. And his answer is based in relationship, because he is pleased with Moses, and he knows him by name. Now, this does not mean that the Israelites will not endure any consequence for their sin. Because after all, a central part of the character of God is justice. When sin happens, there is harm done to communities, to relationships, to individuals, and to the world itself. God has already demonstrated that he resists the proud and that he comes against evil in all its forms, and that is still true but God recommits to remain with his people, not by dismissing or minimizing their sin, but by choosing to forgive and taking the burden of their sin for them. Now, it seems that Moses' request has been heard, that his prayer has been answered, but then comes this sort of pinnacle moment in the story where we read in verse 18. Then Moses said, Now, show me your glory. What is Moses really asking when he asks God to show him his glory? He's already seen the Lord demonstrate his power through miraculous signs and wonders. He's watched the Lord lead his people through the desert in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of smoke and fire, I suppose. He's watched the hand of the Lord part the Red Sea and hold up mighty walls of water on either side of his people as they walk through to safety on dry ground. 
He's experienced the Lord's provision of water and food to sustain them. He's seen the Lord bring an oppressor to his knees and defeat not one but two armies set on the destruction of the Israelite people in opposition to his redemptive purposes. He's heard the voice of the Lord speaking out of a burning bush and booming from a cloud on top of a mountain. And he's just watched as these people who were heard, liberated, led, fed, protected, defended, chosen, instructed, and invited into covenant relationship with Yahweh have turned and devastatingly forsaken their central commitment to love the Lord first and to give their affection, devotion, and worship to him alone. And now they sit in this ugly, messy place where the people's sin has damaged their relationship with the Lord and stirred his righteous anger so deeply that he has considered destroying them. And Moses has boldly interceded on behalf of the people, and God has heard his plea and promised to remain with them and uphold his end of a broken covenant with an undeserving people, promising to do the very thing that Moses had asked. So after all of that, what more can Moses ask for? I think we can better understand what Moses was seeking by considering the Lord's response and the larger context of the question. To Moses' request that God show his glory, God responds, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name Yahweh in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In response to Moses' request to see his glory, God offers his goodness, his mercy, his compassion, and the fullness of his character encompassed in his name, Yahweh. It seems that after all that has transpired, Moses is making one more request to God out of this lingering concern or insecurity. God had communicated earlier that his presence would not go with the people because in his anger over their sin, he might destroy them. And they're still human, right? Sin will continue to be a reality they struggle against. It's as if Moses is offering this quiet plea, God, will you still love your people as you have loved us before, even in our sin? After all of our failure and broken promises, can we still rest and trust in the goodness of your character? And God's answer is breathtaking. The redemptive story of God will continue because Yahweh continues to be the same God he was, he is, and he always will be, and his presence will remain with his people. Finally, the Lord says this to Moses, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. God has listened as Moses interceded on behalf of the people, pleading for mercy from judgment and his continued presence. He's agreed to move forward with his people, and he, even now he has conceded to Moses' final request. 
And I think it's important to pause here a moment and acknowledge the fact that for some of us, this exchange between Moses and God might feel strange and a little uncomfortable. Some of us have been raised in faith traditions that painted God as this hard, authoritative, immovable force commanding creation and orchestrating the events of history, unquestionable and sovereign over all things. And in that sort of context, it's difficult to consider a God who listens to his people and changes course or changes his mind. Pastor and theologian Walter Brueggemann refers to this mystery as God's responsive sovereignty. That Yahweh is indeed the God who is powerful and sovereign over all creation. And he is the God who listens to his people and responds. His decisions and actions are not the result of coercion, but governed fully by his character. God's choice here to show compassion and mercy is not a thing he does begrudgingly. It's rooted in his own name. It demonstrates his sovereign freedom, and it's actually part of his glory. So God gently places Moses inside the crevice of a rock, and he lifts his own hand to cover and shield Moses from the fullness of the glory in God's face a glory too majestic for the human mind to comprehend and too radiant for the human eye to behold. And then God walks by in the fullness of his glory, proclaiming his name, Yahweh, and declaring the goodness of his compassion, mercy, unfailing love, and faithfulness. And in an act of tenderness and love, God then removes his hand so that Moses can gaze at the aftermath of his glorious presence. Can we just stop here and consider the beauty of this moment? God understands that in this time, in this place, Moses is not able to stand in the presence of the fullness of his glory. So God protects and shields him in the midst of it. But once he's passed on by, he allows Moses to open his eyes and see the evidence of his presence, the trail of his glory. Have you ever felt like maybe God has tenderly cared for you like this as well? Have you ever endured a season or experienced a thing that felt utterly overwhelming in the moment? And maybe you believed God was present, but you couldn't really see him. And only in the aftermath of it all could you look back and see, wow, he was right there. But I never could have perceived it then. And what makes this story even more powerful is that this exchange between God and Moses happens in a very significant place. Earlier in the book of Exodus, Moses first encountered God in the burning bush in a place called Mount Horeb. And Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai, the very place where Moses and God are meeting right now. The first time God appeared to Moses in this place within the burning bush, it was there that God first revealed his personal name, Yahweh, as Moses shielded his face in fear from the overwhelming presence of God. 
And now, with courage born over time spent knowing and walking with God, Moses boldly seeks to experience even greater depths of the glory of God than he has yet known. And in this same place, the Lord declares again his name, Yahweh. So, what does that all mean for us? I think it means that the single greatest pursuit of our lives is God's presence. I think it means that only in the presence of the God who knows and loves us can we truly understand our own identity, both as individuals and as a community. And this isn't as easy to embrace as we might want it to be, though, right? Every day we live inside a culture that's set on convincing us that what we really need isn't God, but a nice house, a good education, a career we can be proud of, a great car, the right partner, the best technology, the ability to provide good opportunities for our kids, and so on. We're taught that our identity is ours to create, that we can be whoever and whatever we want. We're taught that what matters most about us is things like our political affiliation, our gender identity, our sexual orientation, our racial identity, our family the country we live in. We're told that these are the things that provide the shape and structure and value to our lives, that these are the things that tell us who we can trust, what to believe, and what our lives should be about. We're so often tempted to place our identity in these things because they feel tangible, maybe even controllable, and they can give belonging, direction, and meaning to our lives. But like the golden calf, they ultimately hold no power. And when we try to find our identity as things, we're doing what the Israelites did. We're taking things, good things, that God gave us to use for his worship and shaping them into weak and meaningless, weak counterfeits. I think Moses is instructive for us. He presses into God so that he and the Israelites might know more of all that God is. What if we did this, both as individuals and as a community? What if together we pressed into God's presence, allowing our hearts to be recalibrated so that we see his glory in his compassion, in his justice, in his power, in his forgiveness, in his provision? I think we need each other for this. I think we need to walk through our days and weeks, our highs and lows together. I think we need to gather together in this space, in our neighborhood groups. We need to learn together, sit around a table and eat together, have fun together, be out in our community loving our neighbors together, and knowing God more deeply as we see the image of God reflected back to us in the faces of every person we encounter. Let us seek to be people who see and experience the glory of God as much of it as we can fathom or comprehend. And not because we've earned it. Church, we could never earn it. But because we've drawn close enough to him to see who he really is in all his liberating power, redemptive goodness, compassion, and mercy. And as we know God, let us then become people who knew, uh, know ourselves, who we really are, 
that our identity is ultimately found not in any nation or race, not in any ideological tribe or political party, not in any gender or sexual orientation, not in any proficiency, skill, or resume, not in our resource, not even in our family, but in our belonging. Our identity is found in our belonging. May we be people who understand that our identity is found in the image of Yahweh we bear and his presence in our midst. And may we live with freedom and courage, knowing that this identity is not just individual, but communal. That we are not just a person chosen by God, but a people chosen by God. To know him in all of his glory and goodness, so that the rest of the world may know him as well. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are the one who tells us who we are, that you call us your own, and that we don't have to be perfect for you to call us that, that you choose to be present with us even knowing us exactly as we are, that you see us and you delight in us, that you desire for us to know you deeply so that we might better understand who it is that you have created us to be. Thank you for your goodness, your compassion, and your mercy, your justice, your power. Help us to be people who walk faithfully, representing you well through our love, through our pursuit of inviting your kingdom here on this earth as it is in heaven. We love you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen.